Welcome to episode two of the New Chicago Way podcast. I'm Austin Berg, along with my co-author, Ed Backrack. As always on this podcast, we'll be telling stories and discussing reforms to Chicago governance with some of the foremost experts in the field, trying to find what Chicago can learn from other big cities in order to build a better future for itself. On today's episode, we're talking about the essence of power in Chicago City Hall, the relationship between the mayor and city council. Chicagoans have been told for years that their city government is designed for a weak mayor and strong council. But in our research, we show that the exact opposite is true. Chicago is the last true strongman government among major cities, and the mayor is the strongman. For evidence of this, we don't need to look any further than 2008, the parking meter deal. It was not merely a bad deal. It was a disaster, and it was orchestrated entirely by the mayor. The simple story is that the city sold the concession rights to parking revenue for 75 years to Chicago Parking Meters LLC, or CPM, for $1.1 billion. Prior to the deal, the city had been collecting around $20 million per year for parking meters. In 2017, CPM collected $135 million in parking meter revenue. At current investment rates, this stream of income would be worth $2.5 to $3 billion. Parking fees in Chicago are now the highest in the country. And while the public was told that the funds would be brought into the budget over the life of the deal so that city finances would get a net benefit for decades, the money was used to plug a deficit in just two years. It's all gone. We interviewed Alderman Scott Wagusbach for our book, one of the few aldermen to vote no on the deal. His first exposure to the deal was a sketchy description he received on Friday, November 29, 2008, just one week before the city council was to vote on the deal. He entered a hastily called finance committee meeting on December 3rd. Throughout the meeting, he was raising his hand and waving the papers that contained calculations and questions that he and his staff had produced over the holiday. Finally, after three hours and 45 minutes, the committee chairman, who like all committee chairmen, was appointed by the mayor, called on him. Most aldermen had already drifted out of the meeting. Wagespach questioned the value of the deal and wondered why it had to extend 75 years. His questions were brushed off by mayoral staff and other loyal aldermen, and the measure was promptly voted out of the committee. The next day, the full council approved it with five no votes. As it turns out, the company that eventually handled the day-to-day operations of the parking meters, LAZ Parking, had an office in Wagespach's ward. A few months after the vote, his office got a call that there was trash blocking the alley behind that office. Wagespach called Streets and Sanitation to clean it up, but also went over to the site to see the mess. Lying on the ground, he found a treasure trove of documents from the parking meter deal, many that were dated before the council was ever made aware of it. The truly tragic part of the story is that the parking meter deal is not an isolated incident. It's part of a pattern. Many other controversial matters, large and small, are handled in the same way. The mayor conceives the deal in private with vendors and interested parties, and then a rubber stamp city council approves it. In some cases, the matter is sprung on the city council with little information and no time for study. A vote is called and the city suffers the consequences. This strongman system has killed deliberative democracy in Chicago. Thankfully, there is no one better to speak about Chicago's mayor and the city council than Professor Dick Simpson. 
Not only did he actually serve on city council as a progressive reform candidate in the 1970s, he's taught political science at the University of Illinois Chicago for more than 50 years and is the author or co-author of more than 20 books on political action, ethics, and politics. You can buy his most recent book, The Good Fight, Life Lessons from a Chicago Progressive, on Amazon. We sat down with Professor Simpson for a conversation. Professor Dick Simpson, welcome to the new Chicago Way podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Glad to be here. Glad to see there's a book out. Yeah, we've been talking with you about it for probably forever three years at this point so yeah actually it's Uh, not long in the process of a book but few people understand how long it takes exactly and you understand it possibly better than anyone on on uh, the chicago government side of things and we obviously really appreciated your guidance throughout it you are the first and probably only former alderman that we will have on this podcast so i wanted to ask you two questions about that and the first is how did you avoid prison and the second is what has changed, if anything, significantly since you served in the early 1970s? Well, first of all, you avoid prison by not taking bribes and things of that sort. Interesting. Uh, and um, so that's relatively easy, although it didn't seem like my colleagues got the message. Um, if Alderman uh, Burke and uh, Alderman Solis and Alderman Cochran, all of whom are either under indictment or in trial, uh, should go down and go to prison. That will be the 36th alderman since I became alderman back in the 1970s uh, to go to federal prison, which is a worse criminal rate than the worst ghetto in the city of Chicago. Uh, but it's relatively easy to avoid doing that. Uh, you simply, you, you have to be fairly cautious. There are some rules. Um, alderman Dupre and before him, Alderman Paul Douglas uh, had developed a rule uh, to take no gifts over, uh, originally their number was 5 or $10. I, my rule was $25. So if constituents were really happy with your staff and what happened and they want to bring a cake or flowers, okay. But if they want to bring an envelope with $500 in it, you don't take it. And did any other aldermen take you up on your, uh, your limit? I don't know that any aldermen have been doing that. Some have done it naturally, uh, and a number quite honest and good, well-serving aldermen. Uh, I worked with many of them, uh, like Marty Overman, Linda Prey, Bill Cousins, and so on, a whole pantheon of um, major heroes um, in uh, Chicago history. I think Linda Prey is probably the best alderman ever to serve in the city council. Um, Charles Merriam would be an example from a hundred years earlier, was a Republican, and then uh, more recently would be someone like Paul Douglas, who served around World War II. And sorry, the second part of that question, I almost forgot it. Have you seen city council materially change uh, in any significant way since you served over the last 40 years? Yes, the opposition block's getting bigger, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, the so-called progressive block, uh, which is the way it's termed since they're no longer Republicans and Democrats in the city council, as there were under Richard J. Daley. Under Richard J. Daley, when he came to power, there were 14 Republican aldermen, one independent and Linda Prey, and the rest were machine hacks. Um, when I left the city council and the Bolandic administration after leading the opposition bloc to Daley and Bolandic, there were only three of us in opposition, and by that time there were no Republicans once in a while. In the intervening decades, there has been a Republican serve, uh, but it's only been one at a time. 
So uh, the new block is between what are called reform aldermen or independent aldermen or progressive aldermen. And uh, the block in the current city council is 11 members. We begin the first full chapter of the book telling the story of the parking meter deal. You do indeed. And uh, Let me say there's a couple of major contributions from your book um, before we get into this, the parking meter deal, uh, which is, of course, a wonderful story worth retelling. Um, the biggest contribution is your look at what other cities in the country do because it gives us a benchmark. It doesn't mean the other cities are right, even if they all go a particular way or more of them do, uh, but it does allow us to compare and I think that's a, a major service. No book that has been done on Chicago uh, has really done that in the way you have. Not even the Home Rule Commission reports really have done that. So I think that's a major service. And I think you do well to start with the parking meter deal as a good example of how things are done badly, even if there's not an outright bribe or corruption. Well, thank you. We think it's a good idea to illustrate some of the concepts that we're trying to bring out. And so the, the story, just very briefly for the listeners, is that about 10 years ago, suddenly the city council was presented with a proposal to sell the right to receive parking concessions for 75 years. And they were to sell this for what would end up being $1.1 five, six billion dollars uh, that was reduced later. So a little over 1.1 billion dollars and they sold the parking concessions for 75 years. And Prior, then spent the money in two years. And spent the money in two years and at the time they were grossing about 20 million dollars from parking concessions and now it's more than 150 million dollars a year. So it was just an outrageous giveaway and it was plopped on the city council with, depending upon how you uh, calculate it, 48 to 72 hours of advance notice and no option for any deliberation. So my question for you is, what did you know about this deal uh, as it was going down? And the second question is, what was your reaction when you learned all of the details of the deal? So first of all, to put it in context, what I've usually um, said is there uh, fewer than 10 aldermen who actually can read the city budget and make any sense of it, as opposed to looking to see whether they got a, a street repaved or something of the sort that's very, very local. They can figure out whether there are any patronage jobs on their committee staff that they've gained or that kind of thing. Uh, the budget is about usually 400 pages, 250,000 um, individual line items, which is actually very detailed. And the aldermen are not a good check and balance. And so that's on every year, every decision of any significance uh, goes through with little clearance, although there's sometimes some debate, particularly if taxes are being raised. So that's the context in which this particular deal came through. And it was outrageous. Uh, the city council has since uh, tried to create a separate office uh, to be able to analyze these kinds of deals because essentially they admit there's no way they can analyze a thousand pages in 48 hours and make any sense of whether it's a good or bad deal for the citizens. And that's uh, the norm, not the, not the exception. Uh, so 
your case study is a very good case study. Uh, the aldermen were asleep at the switch. Uh, some aldermen are very pleased. They ended up voting in the handful who voted against it because it makes them look like heroes uh, this far uh, after the event. But in truth, um, it didn't receive the scrutiny, and it is emblematic of other deals. The, some of the others, like the sailing of the Skyway, were not quite as bad. Um, and uh, as you point out in the book, uh, questions could reasonably raise. Why are we doing this for 75 years? Or some of the other contracts are 99 years. Uh, why don't we do this for 10 years and see how we're doing? Uh, and still own the underlying um, uh, value in the case, parking meters, skyway, whatever. Uh, and there were lots of questions that any reasonable person would ask about this deal, and it did turn out, um, you know, good for the city in the very short run in the sense of for two years they were able to balance the budget without raising taxes significantly. Bad for the city in the long run, and we lost 73 years of revenue that we ought to be having uh, that we no longer will have. So that sounds like a very dysfunctional, this idea that aldermen should be raising questions about deals that are plopped on their desk. And that is really, whenever we talk about the book, every presentation we've given, someone brings up the council wars as if by advocating for a system of government designed rationally in the image of other large cities, we are advocating for dysfunction. Well, and, and also the yeah. council wars is not properly understood. Yeah, what yes, can so we learn from the council wars? You know, so That's first what I of all, to ask you. people who are unhappy because it was a racial war between blacks and whites, uh, Latinos hardly figured in. There were four Latinos in the city council at the time. Um, yes, that's true, and that was all bad. Uh, yes, Eddie Verdoliak and Eddie Burke did some uh, pretty outrageous things. Uh, but the, the truth is, that if you look at it closely, and I have, um, looked at the divided roll call votes and what was at stake in the, in the years of the council wars, the city actually came out better. And why was that? Well, it was because... Uh, Mayor Washington let's, uh, would come in with a budget or would come in with a proposal to get um, community development funds from the federal government, and it uh, would, would be a reasonable proposal. But Alderman, uh, the, the Burke-Verdoliak faction, the 29, uh, would uh, block it, and they would then have to come up with their own proposal. So you know, just take the example of community development block grant money which was uh, significant sums of millions and millions of dollars. Uh, it got so close that they actually, they finally, in uh, the climactic year of 1985, I think it was, had to uh, uh, put the final uh, passage in a briefcase, uh, link it like it was high spy material, and have the guy fly to Washington to be on time. <laughs> but we got... Uh, the best proposal for improving the neighborhoods that has happened up to that point in Chicago history because uh, the mayor got community development block grant money for the poor neighborhoods, but the machine alderman got uh, a bond fund that they had been blocking uh, for the whole time that Harold had been mayor. Uh, it got passed, and things got done in the white wards and the middle class wards, and it was good for the city. Now, was it pretty? No. But having a legislative branch of government is actually a useful function. We should try it sometime. <laughs> so along this line, 
the central thesis of our book is that Chicago's strong mayor structure leads to consistently poor decisions and trouble. So my, I have several questions about that. Why don't civic and community leaders see this? And if they do, why don't they do something about it? And what do you see as the root of this culture of acquiescence? Well, to be blunt, uh, the business and civic leaders, uh, the major ones of Chicago, um, are happy as long as they know how things are. They want stability. They want to know what their profit margin is going to be. They want to know how to get things done. They have a, a pipeline to City Hall. So as long as they understand, if they have to, back in the old days, going back 150 years, if they have to pay a bribe to be able to get their business to be successful, they'll pay the bribe. Um, the civic leaders can be cowed. Uh, the machine in the old days uh, can send out health inspectors, building inspectors, every inspector you can name, and can make doing business very difficult. Now, some business and civic leaders have resisted that and have led opposition movements, whether it was the old progressive movement at the turn of the 20th century or Republicans or progressives or whoever, uh, and have advocated strong and important changes for the city. But generally, it's been, well, let's go along with whatever's there. So um, getting a consensus that we really need to change fundamental things, big things in government, is very difficult. It's not impossible. Uh, I think the driving force is usually money. So the taxes have gotten so high in Chicago, and the process is so difficult, and examples like uh, Alderman Burke shaking down uh, even a, a business like Burger King over a driveway have gotten so outrageous that I think we're in sort of the post-Blagojevich era when the state began to make ethics reforms and the city made some. I think we'll be in for a spate of new reforms. Now, whether we'll get a new city charter like you advocate and whether we will get major change in the structure of politics and process of government depends actually on this election. Um, who gets elected, both mayor and how big the opposition block in the city council will uh, determine how receptive City Hall is to suggestions of change. I think there are civic leaders. Uh, yours isn't the only book on reform. There's the book Tom Tresser and others, myself, uh, put out, uh, The City Is Not Broke. Um, there are other books that have been earlier. It's not like we don't have a reform agenda. We might not agree on every single point, but the fact that there needs to be substantive major change, I think any objective observer would agree to. Uh, it's whether we got the political clout to get it done. Or as Mayor Daly used to tell me when I was an alderman, you ain't got the votes, kid. The original title of our book was actually Chicago is Broke. So <laughs> I appreciate you bringing up that one. Can the quality of alder, because we were talking about this earlier, a lot of folks in office, with all due respect, can count as high as the number of jobs they can provide to people. They're not deliberating on the budget. They have no interest and really no incentive to do so. Can the quality of the city council really be increased over the long term without something in the city charter outlining those responsibilities? No, I don't think that's the issue. I mean, the, the, there are three functions of aldermen uh, in, in the legal sense. 
so aldermen have absolute control over all the laws or the ordinances as they're called. They're also orders and other things, but for practical purposes, the ordinances or laws are the main ones. So uh, you can't pass a law in the city without the aldermen. Second, the aldermen have control over that budget I was talking about, the 400 pages, the 250,000 line items. You can't buy a pencil at City Hall if, if the city council hasn't already approved uh, at least the budget line and the amount in the budget line that you can spend on, for instance, um, supplies or the actual salaries of every single employee in the city is listed in the budget. So that's a lot of control. Uh, and last of all, the aldermen have to approve every major appointment like police superintendent and school board and park board and so forth uh, and most of the department heads that are important. Uh, so the city council in theory has a lot of power. They're not using it. So changing the law to say somehow the aldermen should have power isn't going to make any difference because they already have it and aren't using it. So there are some uh, changes that could be made um, because of the corruption scandal currently. Uh, changes like limiting aldermanic privilege, changes like term limits, uh, changes like uh, a fair redistricting system. Uh, I've been a, the expert witness in uh, two or three of the redistricting court cases that happen every 10 years. I don't know that I will be next time, but I've been there a lot uh, because it's gerrymandered in racial ways, but it's also gerrymandered in other ways, uh, just like the state is. So there are structural changes that are beneficial, but the biggest change is to get a popular movement, uh, perhaps combining both uh, conservative and liberal forces, that is strong enough to demand change. If we demand the right alderman uh, be elected and the right mayor, um, then good decisions will get made. Uh, there's no problem about creating some structures that make it more likely that good decisions are made, uh, but there, you can't, by structure alone, make it work. Following up on that, uh, I've made a list of uh, some of the reforms that we've recommended just in the first chapter of the book, and it includes reducing the size of the city council, eliminating the whole concept of aldermen and wards, and replacing it with city council or city legislator, prohibiting aldermanic privilege or prerogative, which you've mentioned, term limits, which you've mentioned, the method of filling vacancies that arise in the city council, the creation and support of robust city council committees, and having a city council that is presided over by a council president elected from among the councilmen. My question for you is, what's missing from the list, and what, which of those are more important than others? Or would you even criticize? Uh, well, I don't think changing the number of aldermen is good. In the case of Chicago, I know that New York's got 51 like we do. We have 50, and that the other cities have 15 or 17 uh, normally if they're a large city. Uh, but I'm not persuaded about that, and this is the reason. There are two functions for aldermen. So one is the citywide legislative function. And I don't think, I think if you go down to 15, what you've done is create a board of directors, not a legislative body. Um, and therefore, I'm not persuaded that having a smaller city council would be useful and equally important. We can't get there from here. But the other ideas are, mo are basically sound. The other thing I would say that is 
uh, worth considering is the committee structure is not a good one in the city council. In uh, when I did the work for the city club on reforms of the city council, we've recommended ten. We've gotten five partially adopted since 1989. So it, I wouldn't plan on having this happen <laughs> tomorrow morning, but. Uh, uh, people of goodwill can get some progress on some of these issues. Uh, but the committee structure, uh, which has been as high as 28 committees, it really ought to be 10. And they could have a little bit more robust staffing in many of the areas. They don't, I mean, they have plenty of patronage jobs, three or four per committee, but it's not, and that's not counting the finance committee, which may have 100. Um, the, um, there are a lot of... Um, of things that we need to do. We need to have a working committee structure. What works at the city council at the moment is the mayor introduces the legislation, 95% of it. Uh, it goes to committee X. Committee X says, oh, thank you, Mr. Mayor. We'll pass that on Tuesday. And on Wednesday, it goes back to the floor of the city council and passes. There is a pro forma hearing. The clerk's records of those hearings are awful. Uh, the, the committee doesn't even have to report what the vote was nor do they have to report what the debate was. Or attendance, really, I don't or think atten- it's even Yeah, well, attendance, well. They, barely. they barely get it reported, and the attendance is terrible. Some of the aldermen are just over 17 or 18 percent of the meetings. Um, so the, getting the committee structure right, the way that legislative theory says it should be, where you actually introduce something, it goes to committee, it's improved by amendment, it's improved by discussion and debate of experts and citizens and then goes to the floor and gets passed up or down and gets an actual vote uh, instead of sent to the rules committee and killed. All of those are areas where there does need to be improvement and those are areas that your book didn't touch on. But like I say, uh, other than uh, the other function of the city council is to provide services as an ombudsman. And we don't have any other ombudsman in the city, uh, nor are we likely to get one. Uh, And so I take that very seriously as an alderman myself in the old days, uh, making sure that the services do get delivered and more importantly that the community voice gets heard is very important. I'll give you one example of a little broader than just the normal garbage pickup one. When I was alderman, we did the first major downzoning in the history of the city. We downzoned uh, the Lakeshore area because we were at the density of Tokyo, and we didn't think we had to outcompete Tokyo for density and, and high rises in a neighborhood. Oh, it's a very complicated neighborhood with some high rises on the east. In the middle, it's uh, mostly um, uh, apartment buildings, and on the west, it's single family homes. And we wanted to keep a mixed neighborhood that would really bring together people and be a real community. And I think we were pretty successful. Uh, The downtown planners have no interest originally in that. It was only when we got community pressure that we forced them to do a neighborhood plan and actually look at what the zoning did in the neighborhood as opposed to what planners thought they knew down at City Hall. Uh, So City Hall isn't all uh, omnipotent, particularly as you're trying to make real communities and real progress in the city. But uh, just to that point, uh, the, the idea that the, quote, alderman or councilman would be providing those ombudsman services, other cities have gotten around that. In New York's 1989 charter, they created the office of ombudsman or public advocate, and that person is elected, one person is elected at large and has a whole staff for the city of New York. 
Uh, and it's a very powerful position. The current mayor, Bill de Blasio, his previous position okay. was ombudsman. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, there are other ways to, to take it out of the legislative function. And even if we have it as the legislative function, the thing I've advocated is neighborhood government, that we have the zoning hearings locally. Uh, we can still have a downtown hearing, but the, that the real hearings are in the neighborhood, that we have the... Um, uh, I used to have a ward assembly that advised me publicly on how to vote, in fact, bound my vote. We had a community zoning board. We had a community parking board because I had a significant Latino community that was not well served by city politics back in the days. I was alderman. We had a Assemblea Abierta, which was an open assembly for Latinos so that they had a voice. Uh, we now have participatory budgeting in seven to nine wards, depending on the year. Uh, we should have it in 50 wards where neighbors get to say, well, we really think it's more important to have art here or it's more important to knock down that building or it's more important to fix that street. Because these are things, if citizens have an actual voice in their government, it makes a huge difference to the quality of their life. And so there None of this is easy to implement, but all of it is an important piece of the puzzle of what needs to happen. So one of the, one of the most odd, I think, reactions we've, we've had talking about the book is people understand sort of these larger theatrical elements of the problems. We talk about Migsfield, mm -hmm. we talk about the parking meter deal. We talk about those stories in the book to illustrate those problems. But thinking more broadly, what, in your view, have been truly the most harmful consequences of living under a strongman mayor system? I've uh, always believed that uh, what the founding fathers called tyranny, or we would probably call autocracy or dictatorship, is a bad system. You know, mayors uh, get surrounded by yes men and yes women who say, oh, Mr. Mayor, that's a great idea. Let's, you know, knock down Miggs Field. Mm -hmm. uh, we won't worry too much about the fine print of the law that says you can't do that. Um, and it's not, you know, whether it's a good idea. I was always for Parkland and not Miggs Field. It's, uh, but you don't do it by running bulldozers uh, through Miggs Field. Mm -hmm. uh, so you got to think about, do we want democracy or not? And, you know, for liberals, they would say, oh, well, the pump Trump administration is terrible and we should have more democracy. For conservatives, you might say, well, the mayor of the city of Chicago say Rahm Emanuel is terrible and we ought to have more democracy. Uh, they might mean a little different about what they think that is, but in principle, if we don't take control of our government and shape it in a more positive way, uh, we are in for losing what the Founding Fathers created with the Declaration and the Constitution. I've been studying it extensively. My new book has to do with the rebirth of democracy and what would be required for that, both at the national and at the city level. And I think that's the clarion call, whether we're looking at, uh, you know, then we can argue about, well, is term limits the most important thing to do or is remapping the most important or this or that. It's not just like ending corruption. Um, uh, my colleagues and I have written about it for a decade now. Um, we find there are at least 10 things and it's going to take a decade or two to end corruption. Well, it's the same thing about fixing uh, the city council and the strong mayor. Uh, and from my perspective, adding citizens actually having a voice in policy as opposed to 
only going to vote in an election every four years. And barely even really doing that. The average for primary elections in the city of Chicago is 34.2%, uh, which ain't democracy, folks. Of course. And it was really funny, actually, that you know the 2019 consolidated primary, there was a lot of news coverage throughout the day with everybody's hair on fire talking about, oh, man, the turnout is so low. The turnout is so low. What explains such a thing? And as you said, it's about average. Yeah. And this happens every four years. Uh, so, I mean, that's obviously what we try to do in the book and what you do through your work is trying to shake people <laughs> and tell them that this isn't, this isn't necessarily normal. When we, uh, when we first introduce the book and start talking about it with individuals and groups, they always refer to the fact that, well, it's a given that we have a strong mayor form of government, and there is an aura or a myth around that. But uh, isn't the, the, the choice between a strong mayor and a weak mayor really a false choice? Uh, isn't the choice really between deliberative and sometimes contentious democracy and deliberate governmental malpractice? I think so. Um, and you can have, you know, if we use just the words in the English language, having a strong mayor doesn't mean you have to have a weak council. You could have both be strong, which is, I mean, the whole theory in the Constitution is you would have three very strong branches of government. Co-equal. And uh, ambition would be made to counteract ambition. That, uh, yeah, so you might have a mayor who was headstrong and wanted his or her way, and you might have uh, aldermen on the city council who would like to become mayor, fine. Let's, and you could have factions, uh, strong interest groups, business, labor, whoever. Well, that's all right, according to the Founding Fathers, particularly Madison. Uh, the point is to have a clash of ideas in which the citizens retain the sovereignty. And the citizens in Chicago, in fact, do not have sovereignty, and the city council is not a fair representation of the citizenry. Another uh, central uh, proposal in our book is the creation of a voter-approved city charter, and a charter that is developed along the lines by the that are, are uh, published by the National Civic League and their guide for charter creation. And so, my question for you is: What could go wrong in charter creation in the city of Chicago? And how can we avoid those fatal errors? So the biggest thing that could go wrong with the charter is you could have ideologically created factions of extremes. If you think of, say, the most extreme Trumpian supporter on the one side and the most extreme, let's say, Bernie Sanders or whoever on the other side, and you've got factions of that sort and they're not willing to compromise, uh, you could end up with a bad charter and then you have it enacted in law in a way that's very hard to change. It's just like a constitution in that sense. Um, we were lucky in Illinois that uh, we adopted the best constitution, state constitution in the nation back in 1970. There were things we failed at, a merit selection of judges being a good example, but there are others. Um, you know, since we have the bedsheet ballot, nobody knows who they're voting for, and we've also had 19 judges go to federal prison for corruption, uh, we have a pretty good notion that there may be some problems with the judicial system. But nonetheless, the Constitution in protecting 
uh, say, the Bill of Rights uh, that is written into the Constitution, uh, allowing the city to grow for the first time with home rule powers, getting revenue for the cities. There are a lot of very good and innovative things that happened in 1970. So how do you prevent the crazy ideas? Well, that's an important question, and the answer to that is you would have to elect very good delegates. Uh, because just like at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia or the Constitutional Convention when we did it as a state, the quality of the delegates was important. In our state, which is the more recent one, we had 13 independent Constitutional Convention delegates who were, there were people like Don Clark Natch and Bernie Weisberg and Elmer Gertz and others um, that were the swing block between the Democratic and Republican factions uh, which were in those days machine and uh, fairly moderate Republicans, but still pretty ideological, um, they were able to, to hold the balance between them and decide what the final version of the Constitution would be. How you make that mechanics work is very tricky, and it requires whether you have faith in the voter or not uh, to elect people who have... Uh, not just uh, technical knowledge, but the temperament and the desire for the public good. And I think you can trust the people. Otherwise, let's get rid of democracy or the pretense of democracy that we have. Um, you know, at some point you have to take the chance. I did argue against a revision of the uh, a renewal of the, co uh, the state constitutional convention uh, when it last came up, as did Norton Clark Natch and others because it seemed too ideologically tense a time to be able to do a decent revision of the state constitution. And the state constitution we had was better than we were likely to get. But in general, I think the idea of every 10 years reviewing and determining whether the constitution is good or not is a good one. And I think a city charter that was clearer about the responsibilities of government than the haphazard state laws that we have um, under the Cities and Villages Act, as it's called in the state uh, state laws, uh, would be desirable, and we would at least have hopefully thoughtfully thought about uh, what do we want for the future. The 21st century is not the, the uh, 1833 when 28 citizens voted us to become a town. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've got uh, nearly 3 million, 2.8. We need to think about how do we govern that, and more importantly, how do we integrate as a region? It's not really just a city constitution that's needed. Uh, the state is going to have to begin responsibility for regional planning because we're a region of 12 million people. We're only a state of 2.8 million. Oh, we're only a city of 2.8. So that's actually, maybe we could, can wrap up with this sort of laddering up outside of the city council-mayor <coughs> relationship to the nature of state law in Illinois and how much it really affects how the city is governed. And we spent a whole chapter on that as well. And as you said, you know, regardless of the other merits of the, of the 1970 Constitutional Convention, the elements of local governance and self-rule, home rule was a big part of it, but it is very, state law is just so unclear now about whether or not we can have this voter-approved city charter. What, in your mind, should be done at the state level when it comes to city governance in Chicago? How can the state help the people of Chicago be, have self-determination? Well, as um, you partly put out in the book, um, the, the cities, uh, according to Dillon's rule, which goes back a century, are, 
uh, cities and towns are creatures of the state. So uh, in law, the state is the determining factor. So if the state said there should be a city charter and laid out a, po a process to do that, it would be governing. Now the city council under home rule could do it itself. Uh, in the end, the citizens are gonna have to vote in a referendum uh, on any final document that comes out. Uh, you can't just have uh, the city council say, here's a new charter, I like it. Uh, but uh, the state could be helpful, and I think the state could do the second thing, which is it could mandate a more meaningful system of governance, not government, but governance in the region. Uh, we have the new CMAP, relatively new, but it has two problems. They can make nice plans, but they have no legal power to speak of, and they have no money. Uh, and they have no taxing power. So remaking CMAP, there are other examples. I mean, the suburbs do not have inspector generals. So when we did our corruption study, we found 200 suburban officials in 60 suburbs who had gone to federal prison uh, for the same things that we usually criticize Chicago for. The theory that Chicago is this evil inner city and that the suburbs are benighted, wonderful places is just not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, think of Cicero, think of Harvey, but there are a lot of other places like Niles where you wouldn't necessarily think there was corruption and there was massive corruption all over the suburbs. That's something the state can cure, and nobody else can. The sheriff is offered to the suburbs to be their inspector general of the 129 suburban governments that have uh, authority. Ten of them have accepted. <laughs> Maybe we'll end there. Professor Dick Simpson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for your scholarship on the city, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Delighted to be with you. I hope you sell a million copies of the book. We were so thankful to have Professor Dick Simpson on the podcast. He is really one of a group of uh, incredibly committed academics, reformers, talking about Chicago city government for decades. And really, our, our work would not have been possible uh, looking at other big cities without that foundation of that work. And we really wanted to thank him for being on the show. Austin, this podcast is loosely based upon the first chapter of our book. And uh, it was good to review many of the suggestions that we had with Dick Simpson. There are two or three that we didn't get a chance to cover with him. The first is that we suggest the city also create an office of elected chief financial officer. And we talk about this elsewhere in the book. We also suggest that the city create an office of elected city attorney. Both of these are positions that other major cities already elect. So it's not out of the question. And considering the problems that you'll read about elsewhere in the book, they're certainly called for. It also calls into question why we have certain nominal offices that never accomplish anything, the city clerk and the city treasurer. If you had these new offices, the clerk could work for the attorney uh, and the treasurer could work for the chief financial officer. And finally, we highly recommend that we adopt the practice that most large cities have, and that is uh, a president of the city council, somebody who presides over the city council so we can get the mayor out of the city council chambers. Uh, oftentimes, 
that position is elected by the council itself, sometimes elected at large by the community. And there were things I hope the listeners could tell in that conversation. We don't, we won't agree with uh, Professor Simpson on everything. We probably have disagreements about the state constitution, things like that. But overall, I think the biggest point of agreement and something that we really respect Professor Simpson's work for is the the recognition that Chicagoans deserve self-governance and deliberative democracy, and that that can come through a revised, a new city charter that voters get to approve.